0: Beloved saints, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God uh, remains forever. So let us give our attention to the reading of it. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And now turn with me, if you will, to Jonah chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 11 through 17. Uh, If you are using one of the church Bibles, you'll find that on page uh, 774. And uh, a note while you're turning there. As I read it, uh, many of you know that where, where the Bible in the Old Testament writes LORD in all capital letters, what it's saying is that here is that special name for God that, that he gave to Moses at the burning bush. I am in the Hebrew, it's, it's Yahweh. And I'm going to read it that way because it's important for how we understand the, the dialogue between Jonah and the sailors. It's, it's really a personal name, uh, not a title. And that's important to understand. So Jonah chapter 1 verses 11 through 17. Again, this is our God's word. Then they, that is the sailors, said to him, that is Jonah, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to Yahweh, O Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Yahweh, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared Yahweh exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to Yahweh and made vows. And Yahweh appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And so ends the reading of our God's word. Uh, Let us ask his blessing on our time in it this morning. Our great God of truth, we confess that we are prone to believe lies and not the truth, that we are easily swayed and led astray. The simple reality is, is that we give ear to voices that we ought not, And we believe things that are simply not true. And worse still, we often believe things that you have clearly denied. We believe that you are limited by our strength, that you are constrained by our sin, and that our wickedness is greater than your mercy. And so as we look at your word, as we open it up, root out all lies, destroy all impostors of truth, and renew our minds in the knowledge of your word. We ask this all in the name of the God who is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I have a confession. Uh, With Presbytery happening this week, there was a lot to be done. And I did not feel like I had time to adequately prepare a new passage in the book of Luke. That's been our study. So I thought we'd revisit a, a dear passage from the book of Jonah. It's a familiar passage to many of us. Uh, familiar does not mean easy. It records one of those times that the Lord does something that makes us a bit uncomfortable. And maybe, I'm sure, makes many of us think of times in our own lives where trials came that we didn't like and that we didn't understand. That might be a car accident or an illness could be the loss of a loved one. On our good days, we know that God is free, free to do and may very well do what he wishes and have his reasons. And yet, if we had our druthers, if we had our way, we would admit that we would prefer a life without pain and without hardship. Who wouldn't, right? It's no secret. We all know it. We all admit it. But let's be honest. There are things, many things in the Bible that make us uncomfortable. Uh, I'll be honest. I'll start. I can't tell you how many times I have read the account of the crucifixion. And every time I read it, there is something in me that wants Jesus to call down the angels and stop it and deliver him from his imprisonment. If I'm honest, I I don't want him to be like a silent lamb before his shearers. I want him to start taking names and take care of things. There are times I want to tell God that he's doing it wrong that he should not stand by while his son is being murdered. No matter how long I've been a Christian, no matter how well I know the story, there is something that does not sit right with me about the story of the cross. Perhaps I'm alone, but I kind of doubt it. Because I think that impulse is common. We want to believe there's another way. We want to believe that we can have salvation, that we can have redemption without the cross, without sacrifice, that there, that there is another way, that there, there must be another way. Now, I don't think that these two issues are unrelated. Our discomfort with the crucifixion of Jesus and our discomfort with suffering in our own lives, I think, stem from the same impulse, the same source. We are averse to pain and suffering in general. We struggle against it. We want redemption without sacrifice. We want growth without pain. We want success without cost. But that's not the way of our God. And so if we want to seek after him, we will constantly have to face and confront those impulses within us. And that's what we see in a very particular way in the book of Jonah this morning. As we look at this passage, we're going to see that the Lord offers a sacrifice for our salvation. And we are transformed into those who ourselves offer sacrifice back to him in worship and in our lives. Our God is a God of sacrifice, calling us to be a people of sacrifice. The book of Jonah opens with a call to Jonah, and most of us know this. Go to Nineveh. Uh, it's the capital of Assyria. It is the most wicked city in the most wicked land and the most powerful land in uh, it, it would be something like going to Berlin in the 1940s and preaching against sin. Who wants to sign up? Not Jonah. And so instead of obeying, he fled in the, in, uh, in the opposite direction. He, he goes down to the seaport. He boards a boat headed for Tarshish, uh, uh, the opposite direction. But God pursued Jonah, but he pursued him with a storm. And the seas raged. And the boat was about to fall apart. And finally they cast lots to find out whose fault it was. And then the lot falls to Jonah. And by the end of verse 10, they knew that it was because of Jonah and that he was running from his God, this God named Yahweh, Jonah tells them. The God of heaven who created the earth and the seas and all that is in them. They knew all this, but what they didn't know was what to do. They don't know this God. They don't know his ways. They don't know what he requires. And that's where our passage picks up as the sailors, uh, the question on their lips is, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? Knowing who the culprit is hasn't made anything better. The seas are growing worse and worse. And now is the time to act. What shall they do? What does this Yahweh of whom Jonah speaks require? What can satisfy his anger and appease his wrath? And Jonah's answer is short and it's to the point. Hurl me into the ocean. If you read through chapter one, you'll notice this word hurl show up uh, over and over again. Uh, It's repeated, it says in verse 4, God hurled his storm, his wrath, his anger. Uh, In verse 5, they attempted to save themselves from his wrath by hurling their cargo out of the boat. But they did so to no avail. They could hurl all they have and more into the sea, and it would not do a thing. There's one thing and one thing only that the Lord demands, and it's Jonah. Jonah. But the sailors aren't quick to to jump on this plan. They're they're willing to cast all they have into the sea, but they're not willing to throw Jonah yet. So they row as hard as they can back towards the port they left. They don't want to shed blood. They believe that there has to be another way forward, another way out, another way to avoid God's wrath and anger. And so they row, and they row, and they row. But the storm just got worse. And so they're forced to see that there is only one way forward, only one way out of this, only one thing that can stem God's wrath, and it's a life, it's blood. This alone will satisfy his justice. And so they offer a prayer over Jonah in verse 14. They pick him up and they hurl him into the sea as far as they know, to his death. And immediately, the storm stopped. No sooner had, had he hit the water than that mighty tempest, which threatened their lives, stopped. Like that, it's over. And they knew, they, they knew that everything Jonah had said was true. This God, this Yahweh of whom Jonah speaks, is truly the God of heaven and earth. He commands the seas. He commands the dry land. He is a God of great power. And only death can satisfy his wrath. He cannot be bought with all you possess. And this causes them to fear him more than they ever fear the storm. It's like when the disciples were on the, on the sea and the storm calmed, remember? You think, now that the storm's over, your fear would be abated. But it says their fear grew worse. Because as great as the storm was, this God is greater. But it's not a blind fear of terror. It's a reverent fear. It's awe. On the one hand, they've seen God's power along with his wrath. But they've also seen him spare their lives they're still alive they haven't perished he took a jew one of his own people his beloved people and he spared them these gentiles these sailors yes he is a god not to be trifled with he is yes holy and powerful and just yes he can't be bought but he's merciful, and he's gracious, and he shows compassion to those who don't deserve it. He accepts the sacrifice of one in order to spare the many. And so their fear isn't one that leads them away, but leads them into his arms. They respond with a sacrifice and with vows. They worship this God of whom they have only heard just moments before by name. And they bow in humble praise of the God of Jonah. The sacrifice they offer isn't one that they think will quell his wrath, but it's it's a reflection of what they've just seen. The sacrifice of Jonah, which has been accepted in their place, They know that this God is one who will accept a sacrifice of blood in order to save them. And so their worship reflects what they know of him. Of who he is. They make vows. They offer a sacrifice. And this is is no passing homage. They, They are committed to this God for life. These Gentile sailors are now followers of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And then to punctuate this section with death, we're told that God appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah doesn't find a stray board and hold on. He doesn't tread water and and learn his lesson. Death swallows him up. And he continues the descent. Lower and lower into the sea as as this amazing picture of death swallowing him up. And yet hope is held out because the reader hears, not to despair, we're told that he was in the great fish for three days and three nights. And and we end this section with this this reason for hope that, that we might see Jonah again on the third day. We're given this hope that, that death will not triumph, but it's itself, that death itself, like Jonah, will be swallowed up. And we'll see him again. And in many ways, this, this passage seems straightforward. At least it seems familiar. Most of us have, have heard this story from our earliest days. And 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 that can be wonderful and it can be a problem because we can keep the familiar safely distant. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know what happens. He comes at me. We can look at Jonah and, and his obstinance and we can, we can wonder, why didn't he just do what the Lord commanded? Or we can look at the salvation of the sailors and rejoice and say, see, something good came out of this. Or we can fill our time with those wonderful trivial questions. What kind of fish was it? how did Jonah survive in there? And what did he smell like when he came out? Or we can just comfort ourselves with knowing what lies ahead. Oh, it's okay. Don't worry. He comes out. He goes to Nineveh. Let's move on. But it was recorded for us, for you and for me. And, and and we're meant to slow down and, and think about it and meditate upon it. And, and, Let it speak into our lives. And when we do, we'll discover and admit that we're not that different from Jonah or the sailors. If we're honest, we are often uncomfortable with God's ways, his plans, his sovereignty, On our good days, we love it. We appreciate it. We take comfort in it. God just spared me from the most horrific car accident. He is so powerful. He's sovereign. Praise God. We know that if he wasn't in control, that we would truly be lost. We want a God who is greater than the circumstances that surround us. But when he makes decisions that we don't quite agree with, We struggle. Whether that's the hurling of a storm upon sailors in verse 4. Or the confession of the sailors in verse 14. That God has done as he pleased. When everything around them is devastation and destruction and peril. Or if it's the appointment of a great fish to come and swallow Jonah in verse 17. We sometimes think, couldn't God have done something different? Couldn't he have waited until that last moment when the sailors were ready to throw Jonah in and said, stop, I see that you're willing, like he did with Abraham with that knife poised above his son Isaac? Or better, couldn't he have just changed Jonah's heart and made him obey the original call and saved everyone from all this toil and struggle and pain? Couldn't he have saved the sailors from through some other means? We certainly would have. There are times when we're just not comfortable with God's sovereignty and the way he does things. But this book won't allow us to avoid it. The the language of God appointing things just keeps showing up. And what he appoints isn't always pleasant. He appoints things in our lives that we don't like. And he doesn't ask for our permission. And yet in each of these, we seem to find a God... (laughs) who is working towards something good. We have to learn, as the sailors did, that our God is both powerful and merciful. That he appoints things that we might not like and that we'll never understand those things as long as we judge what he does from the perspective of what would I do? We need to learn to confess with the sailors, you, O Yahweh, have done as it pleased you. And that's hard because we're not just uncomfortable with hard circumstances that God allows. We're just as uncomfortable with the solutions he brings. We, like the sailors, prefer less messy solutions than sacrifice and blood. We try to bargain with God and offer up earthly wealth in exchange for his mercy? How many people try casting all they have before the Lord like the sailors hurling their cargo into the waters? How many people try harder and harder to get themselves to safety rather than letting go of life and looking at the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as their only hope? When it all comes down to it, when we look at the pain and the misery around us, when we look at the havoc our sin has not only brought upon our own lives, but upon the world as a whole, there's really only one solution. The word of God comes to us as it did the sailors, and it tells us that our only hope of survival is the death of another. God's own prophet, his messenger of peace, his beloved son, must be offered up in our place. For only death, only blood can satisfy his wrath. There is no other way. We're a lot more like these sailors than we want to admit. Before we come to Jesus, we we row and we row and we row against the storm, and we think that if, if only I try hard enough, I can make it. And if not, we try bargaining with God, thinking that we have something to offer him, something he needs, something he wants. Even after we come to Jesus, let's be honest, we return to our sin. And how many times do we combine these two things and think that we can earn God's forgiveness with a promise to do better, a promise to give something up, How often are we unwilling to come again and again and again and confess that our only hope today is, as it has always been, the blood of Jesus Christ. There's something about us that wants to find another way because the Lord's way is just too messy, too bloody, and too humbling. Because when we confess that the blood of Jesus is our only hope, we are faced... With, with the requirement, we are forced to admit that we really do have nothing. Forced to admit that mercy is really our only hope. Forced to admit that death is the only way forward. But the Lord, the Lord knows we're uncomfortable with this. In fact, in Matthew 16, he mentions Jonah. And right after he does, he warns his disciples... Against what he calls the leaven of the Pharisees. In other words, don't let the way the Pharisees think and believe infect you. Because they want power. They want victory. They want deliverance and they don't want a cross. They didn't want a savior that even appeared to be weak. They interviewed Jesus as a potential savior and they asked him for a sign, some show of power. And he said to them that the only sign he would give them would be the sign of Jonah when God's prophet would be swallowed up in death for three days and three nights. And they said next... And then Jesus went on and he warned his disciples against the temptation to think like those Pharisees, to be consumed with visions of glory, that they they would be unable to perceive God's ways. He asked his disciples, who do people believe I am? Who do they think, say that I am? And they answered, some think you're a prophet, you know, like Jonah. But Simon Peter said, in one of his better moments, (laughs) you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You're not just a prophet like Jonah. You are the God of Jonah. You are Yahweh. And Jesus blessed him. But no sooner did Peter say this than he had one of his worst moments. For we read, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and on the third day rise again. There it is, the plain meaning of the sign of Jonah. This is where I'm headed, guys, and Peter, this is what I mean. This is what you mean when you say, I am the Christ, the God of Jonah. This is what it means, Peter. And Peter, how does he respond? He takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Peter acted like the sailors. There's got to be another way. He acted like the Pharisees. We want glory without the cross. He believed that God must have a way forward for sinners that isn't messy. It doesn't include blood that avoids the cross. This is the very leaven of the Pharisees that Jesus had just warned them about. And so Jesus responds to Peter, get behind me, Satan. For you are a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. We all face this temptation. It's not unique to the sailors. It's not unique to Peter. We all want a way to follow the Lord that's not messy. But the Lord knows no such way. There was no way to redeem us without death, without the shedding of blood. That's God's way of redemption. And it's God's way of transformation. Each each individual Christian is called to walk that road, the road of the cross. And that doesn't mean we offer up our lives to satisfy God's wrath. We don't atone for our own sin, but we're each called to take up our cross and follow Christ. We are, as Paul called us, living sacrifices. Our lives laid on the altar for God to do with as he will. That's what Christ said right after he rebuked Peter. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. (laughs) In other words, Jesus says, I don't just want you to be comfortable with the cross in my life, but in yours as well. The Christian life is messy, it's the way of the cross. But the Lord knows no other way forward. We all want the glory of heaven. We all want to be holy, to be sanctified. We all want to be like Jesus. But if we would grow to be more and more like Jesus, then we must walk the road he walked. It's a road of self-denial, and it's messy. There is much affliction on its way. But the end of that road is glorious. Its end is holiness, its end is peace, its end is heaven. Your life, beloved, is patterned after the cross of your Lord Jesus Christ. It's a life of sacrifice. You are to offer up your lives as living and holy sacrifices acceptable to God. Each day is a day of learning to be content with his ways, knowing that they are not your ways. Each day is learning to die to self that you might live to God. Each day is a step toward learning that God's way forward is through affliction, because that's how he achieves his glorious end. This is what it means to belong to Christ. And that cross has to form and shape our worship as well. It's easy to want worship that's always positive, peppy, and upbeat. It's, we don't want worship that's, that's heavy and humbling and makes us, dare I say, think. Just as the sailors offered up sacrifices as an act of worship, reflecting back on, on what God had just done for them, our worship is to be shaped by the cross. Listen again to to our our call to worship this morning from Hebrews 13. Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city which is to come. Through him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name Our worship is a sacrifice, the fruit of our lips. And its content is to focus on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Each week as we gather together, our worship must focus on who he is and what he has done for us. We're to be reminded that, that he is our only hope, that there is no salvation without him. We sing back to God, praising him for his provision. And we acknowledge that we are now called to take up our cross. All of this comes into unique and sharp focus each week as as we receive a visible reminder of our Lord's sacrifice. In the Lord's Supper before us, we, we see a visible portrayal of the death of Christ on the cross. And in it, we are reminded there is no other way to salvation. And the meal before us, it's the great divider. There are those who who trust in Jesus and his sacrifice, and there are those who trust in their own strength. You're one or you are the other. This meal belongs only to those who have confessed their inability to save themselves and that they trust in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation. This meal is for those who have taken up their cross and are following after Jesus, submitting to the road that he sets before them. This meal is for those who acknowledge that this world is not their home, but they are seeking the home which is to come. And in coming to this meal, there's a great comfort. For the Lord has assured us that those who lose their lives for his sake shall surely find them. That that it's a great sacrifice. It's, It's the way of the cross, and its end is an eternity with him in heaven. Praise God. I'd like to ask the elders to come forward that we might receive this gift this morning. Great God of Jonah, you who show yourself to be sovereign and powerful and to be gracious and merciful. We confess that we are often uncomfortable with your ways, that we would do things differently. But if we were in charge, there would be no sacrifice for sins. There would be no salvation and there would be no hope. And so we are grateful that you are not like us, that you do things that strike us as wrong and backwards. We thank you that you have done as you please. And we ask that you would grant us the grace to rejoice in this more and more, to teach us to take up our cross and to follow you. We ask all of this in the name of him who did not spare himself for our sakes, Jesus Christ, our sacrifice. Amen.